Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It is cold. I want to say cold as hell, but I feel like hell's hot. So, I don't know. Cold is purgatory. I, I, I don't know. Anyways, I'll, I'll stop. I'll stop while we're behind. Anyways, uh, I want to talk about a lot of things today. But first, I just want to give some updated thoughts on Trump's meeting of the maniacs with um, Nick Fuentes, Milo Yiannopoulos, yay. And I was thinking about this because everyone's focused on Nick Fuentes, right? But the fact that Trump was even going to meet with Kanye, like, let's just pretend and entertain the idea that maybe Trump didn't know who Nick Fuentes was. The fact he was still going to meet with Kanye is enough of a problem for me because, I mean, Kanye over the last, like, like couple months has kind of become one of the most renowned anti-Semites in the United States, in my opinion, the things he's been saying. And... So yeah, even yeah, even if even if Nick Fuentes wasn't there, I think the Kanye thing would be bad enough. So that's fun. That's fun. But anyways, it does seem like mainly senators, mainly Republican senators are calling him out. I I will get to Romney's comments later, which I think are the best, but Mike Pence has condemned him. You've you've pretty much had the normal ones do the condemning like usual. I know Kevin McCarthy gave a lovely press conference yesterday and he's like well Trump said like four times he didn't know Fuentes and I'm like if that's your takeaway from this maybe you need to like check yourself a little bit but it's just weird that not as many house republicans are calling him out for this I sure haven't heard Marjorie say much <laughs> but it it is always telling the ones that do speak out and the ones that don't yeah it's it's interesting and before I get into more of that I <laughs> I have to say I, I watched a segment of Tim Pool's uh, podcast, uh, IRL or Tim Pool. I don't even. I, I, he has like four different podcasts, network things going on. So I'm not sure which one. He's a grifter. He calls himself a centrist. He's more like a far right grifting troll who did that weird thing where he was like a leftist who became a hardcore MAGA guy. He was thinking Trump was going to win in a landslide in 2020. Anyways, he's a buffoon. I think the beanie that he wears 24 7 is like covering up for his lack of brains. I don't know. He just reads the news and he finds weird things in the news that I don't think are even in the things he's reading. But anyways, he had on actually Nick Fuentes, Kanye, yay, whatever, and Milo. And Kanye walked off the set because <laughs> Kanye mildly, I mean, not Kanye, Tim Pool mildly asked Kanye who they was when Kanye was talking about they. And so basically Tim, Tim Pool was like, I think they have been harsh on you. And what Tim Pool meant was the media, because Tim Pool is a big media critic. And okay, whatever. But then Kanye's like, why won't you say they? And he's like, I think we have different definitions of they. And of course, Kanye's talking about, you know, the Jews. And so Tim Pool kind of pushed back and said, I'm not talking about they, because I don't like Tim Pool, but I don't really think he's probably an anti-Semite. And then Kanye had a breakdown and left, and then Yiannopoulos and Nick Fuentes left. Like, I don't think Tim Pool should even have these people on there. They're all just messes and jokes and... I've heard enough of what they've said. I know people will say, let people talk and you'll hear their bad ideas and then you can challenge them. I don't think Tim Pool is really the right one to do that. I don't know if he's good at challenging those things. And also, I've heard enough of these people to know that they're just dangerous. Like, But then there's a picture, too, of uh, Fuentes, Kanye, and uh, Yiannopoulos on the jet after the Tim Pool episode. And Kanye just looks like staring into the void. Um, you wonder if there's any self-reflection there. Probably not, but... I also think, though, going back to the people that have condemned it, I don't know if we should completely celebrate Republicans for condemning Trump's actions 
or this meeting at Mar-a-Lago, dinner party, whatever you want to call it, because we do have to remember that they did the, practically the same thing on January 6th, and then they slowly came back to him. I, I don't really believe it yet, and I've talked about this a few weeks ago, I think, but they're not condemning Trump because they know he's bad and morally atrocious and dangerous. They're condemning him because he's becoming bad for the Republican brand. It's as simple as that, right? They're not doing this because of some moral shift. And I'm fine if people have this moral shift, but it's kind of been the consistent ones the whole time. Because I, I think, for example, like the William Bars who are condemning what happened or the Pence's, Part of me thinks that if Trump was the candidate again, they would probably come back to him and support him. It's all calculated based on power, and that's not good to me. Romney, again, like I said earlier, he's the only one I'm still celebrating because he said what should be said by all of them, in my opinion. Earlier this week, he said that, in quotes here, I don't think he should be president of the United States. I don't think he should be the nominee of our party in 2024, and I certainly don't want him hanging over our party like a gargoyle. I like that part. And I think it's true because, and, and what's telling to me about Romney is that the rest of the people like Bill Barr, for example, I, I just use him because I think he's the most, most pressing example of this. Like Bill Barr condemned Trump, said he was dangerous, has said this guy is morally unfit for a lot of things. But then he also said that he would support him in 2024 over a Democrat. And I get partisanship is strong. And typically, yes, like I would, I would totally understand it if Barr said that about Pence or even DeSantis, right? Like, he's like, yeah, I don't want the left taking power. I get it. But this guy testified about Trump's unfitness, and he even resigned because of it. And he still would go back to Trump over a Democrat. That just tells me there is something morally weak and cowardly about the man and these people that are condemning Trump, because we know it's not because of morals and the anti-Semitism part and the dangerous rhetoric, because we know they come back. And I wouldn't be surprised if they do again. If they aren't willing, like Romney said, he shouldn't be president ever. Again, that's what Liz Cheney has said, Adam Kinzinger. But the rest, I think they'll come bouncing back to him if the right opportunity comes and his brand is not toxic for the party. So wait and see. I hope I'm wrong, to be honest, but I don't think I am. I don't think I am in this one. So one more thing on Trump. Taxes. Tax season's, you know, several months away, but uh, Trump's taxes are right now in the spotlight. Not not probably what he wants people to see. So on a fun note, I talked about this last week. Remember, the Supreme Court denied Trump's request to block the release of his tax returns. And it looks like the, looks like the House Ways and Means Committee now has six years of Donald Trump's federal tax returns. That's some fun stuff, I'm going to say. Like, not that I'm hoping that, you know, Rome burns because of this, but I'm kind of thrilled to kind of, like, eventually find out what's been in those, right? And... This has been a year-long pursuit by Democrats to dig into basically his most guard, most closely guarded information, right? Like, this is some interesting stuff. And we don't have a lot more details at the time just because I've, I've read, at least, that they don't plan on releasing this to the public for a long time. So we're not going to know this stuff, but at least there are people scrutinizing it now. And my biggest question is, what will these documents show? That is really what I'm curious about, right? And... I mean, there's, I have some theories, of course, and the committee is led by the Democrat Richard Neal, and he has basically sought six years of Trump's tax records, prim primarily actually from the time he served as president. Now, I would be more curious, to be honest, about some of the earlier, earlier ones as well. But yeah, they're looking at mainly his time in office, and the records include about 
pretty much everything from Trump's personal records to his corporate entities. And I guess like while there's a lot of speculation we can do on what these will show, to me, I think it would be interesting to see what his income was like while he was in office. That's something that I would really like to see out of these. And what I mean is that, you know, they're going after Hunter Biden and the corrupt, you know, Democrat cabals and blah, 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 blah. And I'm curious if Trump was uh, profiting off of his time in office and what those income streams looked like. I'm also curious about what his businesses did, because remember, as president, he had to step away from chairing the Trump Trump Foundation and, the, you know, the Trump company, company, sorry, the Trump Corporation. And so I'm curious if he was as corrupt as we think. I'm also curious what his net worth is. I mean, I think I think that's like the billion dollar question here. In his case, maybe less than a billion dollars. I, I, I always wonder. I mean, look, he's rich. No doubt he's rich, but I think a lot of us do wonder how rich, and maybe we'll finally get to the bottom of that. A man can only hope. A man can only hope, and you never know. It'll probably let me down again, but for now, I think we are going to learn some stuff down the road about this, and it's I, I'm all here for it. Of course, you know, Republicans are going to take back committees once they take back the House in the new year, so it'll be interesting to see if this gets stalled, but at least we know the documents are out there and people are looking at them. I do wonder if there's going to eventually be a leak because that type of stuff always seems to happen. So yeah, we'll have to watch that quite closely. Moving on, I want to talk about basically some revelations that have come out of the January 6th committee and the subsequent trials, investigations, and in this case, convictions. The New York Times writes here that, in quotes, in a landmark January 6th case, the leader of the Oath Keepers militia and one of his subordinates were convicted of seditious conspiracy for plotting to keep Donald Trump in power. And just so we know, so we're all clear, the two people were Stuart Rhodes and Kelly Meggs. Stuart Rhodes is a real unique character. When you look at him, you wouldn't really think that this was a guy, I think, who went to Yale Law School. He's the founder, I, I believe, of the Oath Keepers. Real fun character. <laughs> I don't know if fun's the right word, but... You get my drift. Um, other people in this were not convicted, but I do think that getting the top ones is important, and it definitely sends a message. So I'm here for it. I'm definitely here for it. And I also think this is really good news because creeps, degenerates, neo-fascists, whatever you want to call them, like the Oath Keepers, they think they're patriots, and they want to, they want people to perceive that they're there to fight for America and their heroes and whatever else, you know. But I think the fact that this jury found these guys to be seditionists and dangerous individuals who wanted to corrode our democracy is a good thing. It sends a message that, no, no, we are not actually willing to deal with this bullshit. And there's a good Atlantic article that goes into more detail about this. And the article discusses basically the importance of this case because prior to this verdict, there really was a lot of gaslighting on the right. You, you guys remember how you had people like Ron Johnson call it a tourist visit. Oh, families were just out there. I mean, I watched most of the thing. I was out on a ski in, in the Ur Valley, which the names don't matter. But I was out on a ski, and I came back, and I see people beating cops with flagpoles. I don't know, I don't know about you guys, but those aren't like tourist visits I've gone on recently. But... Yeah, you had Ron Johnson doing that. Others questioned, well, was it a violent day? There weren't that many guns. I mean, you don't have to use guns to be violent. Like, a lot of history has lacked guns, and people have been violent, right? And others asked, oh, if this was such a dangerous day, why was no one convicted of treason or sedition? If it was really an attempt to overthrow a government, keep Trump in power, or whatever. And in this Atlantic article that I mentioned earlier, David Graham, who I really like his perspectives 
he writes that this gaslighting, in quotes, now has fallen by the wayside because a jury in Washington, D.C. convicted Stuart Rhodes and, and Kelly Meggs, two leaders of the militia called the Oath Keepers, of seditious conspiracy. He continues by discussing how jurors returned a complex set of verdicts. They also found Rhodes, Meggs, and other leaders of the group guilty of obstructing the certification of the election and destroying evidence. But they also acquitted Rhodes of two other conspiracy charges and three others of seditious conspiracy charges. And, okay, yeah, they're not going to get you for everything, but they got some stuff. Like, they, they had a lot of, um, let's, just say, let's just say they had a lot to work with, and some stuff worked out for them. And it sends a message, right? This was not a tourist visit. Usually, uh, tourist visits don't start with uh, seditious plans to overthrow a, a government. <laughs> and we do have to remember, because I want to get into this a little bit, uh, we do have to remember that sedition is different from treason, and it comes with different charges as well. Of course, it's related, but they're not the same thing. And Graham writes here in quotes, the charge involves conspiring to overthrow, put down, or to destroy by force the government of the United States, or to oppose by force the authority thereof, or by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States, or by force to seize, take, or possess any property of the United States. And I, I think if you look at those kind of three different categories, a few of them do add up with what we saw on January 6th. And in, in a moment, I'll get to why treason might have been more difficult because it sounds like they did the right call and sedition obviously is difficult to prove but it sounded like they had the receipts as the kids say these days and carlton larson who is a martin luther king jr professor of law at uc davis school of law he's argued that these charges were correct indeed he I think it's something interesting that he notes is he does acknowledge that sedition charges in the future could be abused because it's a vague range of activities, seditionist behaviors, violence, intent is always difficult. And he acknowledges that, yeah, this could be difficult. But then he also says that what happened on January 6th should not stop prosecutors from using these charges when they are fitting. And he argues that, yes, people like Stuart Rhodes are asses and they should be prosecuted exactly with these type of charges. He also discusses basically why sedition was a better call over treason. He writes in an article from a few months ago in quotes here, treason prosecutions would have introduced significant legal complexities while doing very little to increase sentences. Seditious conspiracy charges, by contrast, are perfectly pitched to the gravity of the offenses and given the substantial evidence laid out in the indictments should be relatively straightforward to prove. Larson also notes here that sedition charges have been rare in the United States. And I was looking into, there is one with the guy involving the World Trade Center in the 90s, not the one that it took him down, but the one in the 90s. That was a, makes sense to be sedition. Um, but there was also one involving some sort of a kidnapping attempt in Michigan in the 2000s. And it was a mess and actually kind of backfired. It was a fiasco. So people are hesitant to really get into sedition. But... Larson also discusses how the charges were obviously correct for the January 6th guys, like Stuart Rhodes, because the attack was aimed at the most basically essential ritual of democracy, which is the transfer of power, and albeit a peaceful transfer of power, which we saw eventually happened. But if Trump had it his way, especially with the help of these fascist groups like the Oath Keepers, it probably wouldn't have happened that way. And Larson also discusses how I'll just, I'll just give you some examples, and then you'll, you'll see, I think, also why this was important, is because he also discusses how sedition charges must involve a complex conspiracy and a prior agreement to commit particular offenses. 
But it doesn't encompass people who simply made impulsive decisions. And I would assume, for example, this is why, I don't know, the gal from Nebraska who went to the Capitol and got involved in the storming of it but didn't really know the intensity of the situation hasn't got sedition charges, right? The random people didn't get it, but people like the Oath Keepers did. And don't you remember, I, I read what sedition charges include, and it's conspiracy, prior commitment to encompass these issues. And as we've learned during the January 6th hearings, the Oath Keepers have planned this for weeks before January 6th. They had plans to basically light the fuse on what they called a civil war of some form. So that sounds like a plan. They also brought in weapons and bombs. That sounds like a plan and were in communication throughout the, ta the attacks with everyone from like Roger Stone to Mike Lindell, the MyPillow CEO, who's a nutcase, by the way. But yeah, to me, this sounds like a conspiracy. You're not just going there and hoping to start something. You've been planning it, and you're in communication. Now, I would also argue that treason would line up with these actions as well, because look, like, I guess if you just looked at some of the definitions of treason charges, it talks about levying war against their own country in this case, the United States, and I do think the Oath Keepers did want to do that, but it gets difficult because Larson notes that in the past, treason charges have been easy to identify, for example, like the Whiskey Rebellion of 1794 or Fry's Rebellion, which is, I think, like 1800. And these were clear examples of treason, but Larson also notes that these definitions have kind of changed and what it means to levy war may be different because Larson writes that, in quotes, Justice Robert Greer suggested that levying war against the United States also requires an intent to overthrow the government entirely, not just to obstruct the operation of one particular act or law. Sorry. And this does get complicated in the case of January 6th, because to me, it's not clear whether these people and what I mean is the Oath Keepers, the Trumpists, the Roger Stones, the Proud Boys, the neo-Nazis, the Confederates and the average voters I don't know if they actually wanted to overthrow the entire government. To me, I don't believe that. I think what they wanted to do was stop Mike Pence from certifying the vote so Trump could stay in power. And based on what Justice Robert Greer suggested about levying war against the United States, I don't know if that definition holds up with what happened. And <laughs> I think Larson jokes pretty well in this Atlantic article. He writes, uh, applied to January 6th, this sounds like a law school exam hypothetical from hell. <laughs> and yeah, that sounds about right to me. But basically, I think that sedition was the better case for them to follow. It seems somewhat easier than treason. And also, they got it done. So we need to be thankful that they got it done. Uh, Stuart Rhodes is a POS. I'll let you uh, break down what that, what that stands for. And he's a dangerous individual who wanted to start something more than just a raid on the Capitol. And the fact that they convicted him yesterday is good news. Very good news. And I think it's going to be harder for the, you know, the Ron Johnsons to say January 6th was just a calm tourist visit with loving families. Yeah, the guy got sedition. They've only done that four other times. I didn't know peaceful families also try to overthrow a operation like that. So, yeah. Moving on, before we get to my growing fears about political, I guess you could say, rows between the United States and Europe, economic issues, stagnation, and a summer, or sorry, not a summer, a winter where we could see probably hundreds of thousands of people die due to energy issues throughout Europe, I want to briefly stay in the U.S. for a minute, talk about some good news. Let's talk about some good news for a moment before we get into bleak, depressing news, which seems to be my forte. But anyways, the, the good news is that 
the protection of same-sex marriage in the United States seems to be going forward, and Republicans and Democrats are working together to do it. I know that sounds like something out of a Twilight Zone movie at this point, but here we are. So the Senate, according to the reports of yesterday, passed a bill mandating federal recognition for same-sex marriage. Now it goes to the House, which is expected to approve it, but I have less faith in the House, as I've told you guys throughout all the time I've done this podcast. But this is called the Respect for Marriage Act, and I think it's good. Because based on what based on what we've seen, the <laughs> based on okay after Roe v. Wade was overturned and all the abortion bullshit and all that, I think it's smart for them to codify same-sex marriage as well. Because I mean, Clarence Thomas, if he was up to make the decision, Obergefell would be overturned and it'd be illegal for two people of the same sex to get married. And look, I'm a civil libertarian. I <laughs> If, if two guys or two girls want to get married, that is the least of my troubles. Look, we have a lot of things that are wrong in this world, from inflation to high prices to health care costs. If two people of the same sex want to get married, I could care less. Couldn't care less, excuse me. So, anyways, Reuters notes and quotes here that 12 Republican U.S. senators joined Democrats this week in voting to codify same-sex marriage in the United States and a bill that advocates say was necessary to basically ensure the Supreme Court does not overturn its earlier decision protecting it. And we know they like to overturn things. That's been something fairly common with this new Supreme Court, right? And I want to give a shout out actually to these Republicans because it's not a very welcoming climate for LGBTQ plus rights. I mean, we have to remember there was a gay nightclub shooting a few weeks ago. At this point, Uh, the rhetoric on the right is about groomers and grooming your kids and They were blaming the trans and gay community for the shooting. I mean, there's a lot of vitriol on the right. And so the fact that these 12 people, of course, it's only 12. (laughs) We have to remember that, that out of all the Republican senators, it was only 12. But these are some good ones. So I I do want to give them a shout out because it's nice to see we can get some nice things if we work together. So Susan Collins, of course, Rob Portman, who's retiring, Tom Phyllis, Lisa Murkowski, Dan Sullivan, Cynthia Loomis, Todd Young, Joni Ernst. Shelly Shelley Moore Capito, Capito, sorry, Roy Blunt, which is interesting to me, but yeah, cool. And Richard Burr. And of course, I have to mention Romney, but I kept him for the end. Good old Mitt Romney, because the Mormons always fascinate me here. But he said in quotes, this legislation provides certainty to many LGBTQ Americans, and it signals that Congress and I esteem and love all of our fellow Americans equally. And he said this in a statement. And, you know, it's, it's just fascinating to me because, like, after the Black Lives Matter protests, you know, and George Floyd was killed, it was interesting to see, like, Mitt Romney out there marching with them and stuff. Like, this is a Mormon conservative from Utah. And he was also our presidential nominee in 2012. And just the, the way that he's diverged so much from the rest of the Republican Party is kind of mind-blowing to me. Like, God, like, if, if he could be the nominee again, I would go back to voting for Republicans. But obviously not going to happen. Of course, he's out of touch. He's kind of weird, rich, rich dude that, you know, uh, the some of the things he's said clearly scream that he's out of touch, but I'd rather out of touch than a fascist delusional who meets with neo-Nazis. So, you know, pick your poison, right? And um, should be noted on this bill as well that the bill is not as great as summer celebrating because it does not require all states to allow same-sex marriage which is obviously the current reality under the Obergefell versus Hodge decision from 2015. Currently, same-sex marriage is allowed because of that. Now, 
What this does, from my understanding, is that if the Supreme Court were to overturn Obergefell and previous same uh, state prohibi- pro- prohibitions on same-sex marriage came into effect, basically this new Respect for Marriage Act would require states and the federal government to respect marriages conducted in places where it's illegal. So it's not perfect, but it's basically trying to create a backup if Clarence Thomas and some of these other zealots do what they've promised to do. And I think that's good. Look, I think that's good news. So good on the Republicans who went with it. We're going to have to see what happens in the House, but hopefully they can get this passed because to me it just seems easy. Like, do we need to go after certain communities of people when there's so many bigger fish to fry? I don't think so. So yeah. Anyways, last thing I want to talk about is Europe. So we're going to leave the U.S. where things are always bubbly and interesting. And unfortunately, things are cold and darker and more depressing in Europe right now. Yep, we're back to the not as happy topic. So I want to talk about some growing worries in Europe centered around energy, the war in Ukraine, and actually kind of a row with the U.S. over subsidies and protectionism. And The Economist has a great article from, I guess it's this week's edition, and it discusses how in quotes here, there's a growing fear that the, reca- uh, the recasting of the global energy system, American economic populism, and geopolitical rifts threaten the long-run competitiveness of the European Union and non-members, including Britain. It is not just the continent's prosperity that is risk, but also the health of the transatlantic alliance. So let's start with the war in Ukraine, because there's kind of a lot of different factors that, like, I mean, I for years have told you guys that I don't think the EU remains a decade from now. I really don't because you you have to have standardized monetary and fiscal policies put out by the European Central Bank and it's hard when you have like a poor country like Greece up against a you know a fairly wealthy country like Germany like it's really hard to put standardized policies for those but anyways let's start with the war in Ukraine because it looks like energy is going to be a huge issue I saw that about a week ago Russia threatened to cut the last operational pipeline to Europe of course, Europe is trying to catch up, but I guess when you make these bad decisions for the last two decades relying on Russian oil when you know Putin's a nutbag, that it's going to backfire. And I'm not trying to just throw the shade at Europe and say I'm laughing about it. I'm not. It's going to be tragic, probably. But this is what happens when you make bad decisions, and Europe's gas storage is going to need to be refilled once again in 2023. But this time, they're probably not going to have Russian oil, so I don't know how they're going to do that. Of course, the United States has become quite a fracking capital, getting oil out there. There are other options, the Saudis, <laughs> all of all of the great actors. Qatar, where the World Cup is happening, very open, welcoming country. Of course, I'm being facetious, but the Economist notes here in quotes that our modeling suggests that in a normal winter, a 10% rise in real energy prices is associated with a 0.6% increase in deaths. And so the worry is, is that with this energy crunch, I mean, Europe's getting cold as hell right now, or again, cold as limbo. Um, The energy crunch this year, according to predictions, could cause about 100,000 extra deaths of elderly people and vulnerable people across Europe. This is not just talking about Ukraine. This is talking about through all of Europe. And it makes sense. I mean, cold times, high energy costs, people might not be able to afford their energy because we have to remember in the United States, our energy is fairly cheap compared to what it was like in Europe. And so... Basically, Putin could use an energy weapon that could take more lives outside of Ukraine than the bombings, the drones, the artillery have done within it. And this goes on top of that scary report I talked about last week from the World Health Organization that said inside of Ukraine we could see hundreds of thousands of deaths due to food food supply issues, hospitals being bombed. So 
I think things are going to get really bleak. And, of course, this is the first winter we're going to see since, you know, the invasion began. And, yeah, so that's, I think, with the beginning. That's going to be, like, the kind of most obvious struggle. But now I want to also talk about financial issues because I think there's something interesting going on in the world, especially in the United States and Asia, involving protectionism, high subsidization of uh, resources. And I, I think it's also, like, pretty damn bad for Europe. And so... As I kind of alluded to, the European Central Bank is in a very bad place because with the way things are looking, it needs to raise interest rates. But again, Europe is such a diverse economic block that Italy and Italians could not afford the same inflation rates as people in the Netherlands or Germany. And Spain probably on the bottom tier, and you have countries like France kind of in the middle. I just see raising interest rates uniformly being extremely difficult because if it goes too far, it could basically destabilize the Eurozone's weaker members. And, and the Euro's already in a very shitty situation, excuse my French, or let's say excuse my Italian in this case. And it's, it's troubling to me. Also, too many of Europe's industrial firms, mainly Germans, the Germans have not made good decisions, I just want to say, but Mainly German ones, they've relied on abundant energy from Russia, and look, that's not helping. And I guess when you have this situation where they're hesitant to raise interest rates, you have European firms that have relied on European energy, then you have protectionism and nationalism growing. Like, the thing is, in the United States, like things like the uh, Inflation Reduction Act that basically subsidizes sectors of the American economy. We can do an, uh, like another episode on whether that's good or bad, but it, when it subsidizes entire parts of the green economy, it's basically what China's been doing for a long time in kind of boosting up their own internal infrastructure. And of course that's good, but I am an anti-protectionist. I'm an anti-nationalist in a lot of ways. And I think what we're doing here is that we have basically made it to the point where investment into Europe could dry up. And we start taking care of ourselves and not working in this international free trade order that we've grown so much to work towards. And another article discusses how, in quotes here, as places like China and the United States, the two pillars of the world economy, become more interventionist and more protectionist, Europe, with its quaint insistence on upholding World Trade Organization rules on free trade, looks like a sucker. And, (laughs) yeah... I think that's a big problem that not enough people are talking about because some countries are already reacting to basically the subsidization of domestic markets in places like the United States, and they're moving investment out of the EU to that. So what happens if you have a place that relies on a lot of investment all of a sudden moving out of there? Hint, spoiler, whatever you want to say. Probably not good. And there's a, there's a company called Northvolt, which is a startup battery company, I believe, out of Sweden. And it said it wants to expand production in the United States. Of course. Of course it does. That makes complete sense. Hidradola, a Spanish energy company, is actually looking to double their investment in places like the United States and cut that from the European Union. So we're looking at a decrease. Sorry, we got a loud vehicle out there. We are looking at a decrease in investment, especially foreign subsidized investment, into places like Europe. And we're also looking at it being more focused in countries that can afford it. And so if I was if I was working for the European Central Bank right now, I'd be going, fuck. And the, the problem is it probably doesn't happen too quickly, and it could be far off. But 
I guess in the long term, if you see protectionism kind of dominating countries that European firms have relied on, this could lead to economic stagnation and even deindustrialization in Europe. And then you also mix that with energy prices, the war in Ukraine, an aging population that is much further along than places like Europe. It makes things bad. And then the icing on the cake, if there wasn't already some, and I do like my icing. To make matters worse, there are fears of this, of course. And basically this fear of kind of an economic row between the United States and, and well, Europe in general, has made Germany's e economy minister, for example, accuse America of hoovering up investments. Because remember, the U.S. has funded Ukraine, sent weapons to Ukraine, and also does not have the same economic contractions that we're seeing in the European Union right now. And President Emmanuel Macron of France has also called for a European wake-up. So now there's worries that, like, do they start going down this protectionist road? Could they do it? What does that mean? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But, like, the U.S. has always been a close ally of Europe. And I'm worried that this could lead to issues between us, especially when the Germans are calling us out, even though we're trying to do our best to keep Ukraine afloat. And, of course, then you, you get to the political issues inside is where you lead – economic woes lead to growing populism, growing anti-Semitism, growing desire for change. And usually that change is not positive during times like this. So I, I worry there's a lot of factors in Europe. And I know I've talked about this before, but it is interesting to see that, like, both Biden and Trump have really been protectionists and have really looked at subsidization well, – Biden more than Trump on the subsidization stuff, but – yeah, it's fascinating. It's fascinating and somewhat troubling. So anyways, uh, I want you guys to have a great night after all those happy topics, and uh, I'll be back. And you can find me again on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, all those third-party sites that I've never heard of. And uh, take care. Stay warm. Stay warm and stay safe. Peace. Peace.